because she'll be pushing me in a wheelchair around. I'll be like, to the castle. I want to die in a castle. Take me to the castle. Yeah, I can't afford to buy one. So, but if I spend every day inside a National Trust castle, <laughs> I'm increasing the chances here. that I may die in the castle. Yeah. He died in a castle, so he did well with his life. No, he I was just on a... JSA, but... <laughs> that doesn't exist anymore. He pumped everything he had into just visiting castles all day, every day, in the hopes that he would have a heart attack. Yeah, he wanted to end his days. They're coming at you with the so he could... machine. You're like, no! So he, so he could haunt the castle. Oh, my God. Yes. Go. My two loves. Fine. Oh, ghosts can, and castles. You can affect that you're some kind of, you know, ghost from the Middle Ages and putting on ghost armour. And then when people are asking you, you'll just your ignorance will show through or you'll start talking about Wi-Fi connections and be like, wait a minute, are you sure you're <laughs> a ghost from 1462? God damn it, he died in the 2000s. Oh, it's just some <laughs> emo sake. cosplaying. Jesus. <laughs> hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser-known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... This story takes place in Victorian England. Yeah, we can go home now. You smashed it. Done. But first, a bit of backstory. So, okay, fine. until the late 18th century, the education of poor children in England was practically non-existent. There were some Sunday schools which would provide very basic instruction for free to a selection of children deemed to be deserving poor. Because this was back in the day when you had to be moralistically above reproach in order to be, you know, afforded any kind of government handout. I mean, imagine. Yep. <laughs> You'd never get that these days. But these schools were few and far between and had practically no oversight regarding the quality of what was being taught. So if some kindly vicar decided that they were going to set up an afternoon of lessons, they could do that. Uh, no one no one from local council was going to come around and check what they were teaching. It was just, oh, isn't that a very philanthropic thing to be doing? So you could really yes. in, you could indoctrinate kids into all manner of cults if you'd been forward-thinking back in Victorian Britain. I mean, and they probably, probably were. Yeah. Yeah. Um... I mean, part of this... The fear was, of God. Yeah, the fear of God was good. That's why you went to church. But mm. I think part of it was that the rich people of the country were going, well, what, what's the benefit to us of the poor being able to read and write? If anything, it's just going to give them ideas above the station and they might start, you know, sort of looking at the laws that we make them follow and pointing out inconsistencies or, I don't know, writing to us with grievances that they might have. And I, I don't See, that was that. that was a big thing as well, wasn't it? When the um, uh, the Catholic Church kind of got threatened by the the Bible being written in the language of wherever you were, so whether it be German, English, because all of a sudden people could understand what they were saying. Therefore, if they could understand it, they could question it yeah. and be like, "Well, what does that actually mean? And why do they say that?" And then there's interpretation. So. Actually, it probably wasn't in their interest to no. educate these people to a high standard. Yeah, to a to a high standard. <laughs> well, to be fair, though, I mean, just being able to read and having those books, like you say, in the common language of wherever you were, was it was a risky business because anyone could write a book. And as we know from Georgian England, every bugger was writing a pamphlet. 
<laughs> yes. It seemed like yes. any time you had a thought, if you had enough money, you had to make it in pamphlet form and start handing it around the streets. I, I thought this. What do, you, what do you think about my thought? Please. I am outraged by Mrs. Taylor's dress. It was in a hideous shade of green. Take my pamphlet and read all about it. I'm asking that we burn the tailor. And I know it sounds extreme, but once you've read through the 16 pages, I think you will come round to my point of view. Mm -hmm. He's a tit. But in 1798, a 20-year-old man called Joseph Lancaster announced that he had an idea for how education could be standardised in order to ensure that every child in the country could receive a good education. Even better, he insisted that he could do this relatively cheaply. What was his motivation? Uh, well, Joseph Lancaster was a Quaker. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. A Quaker with a rich father and not not a clear career path. So, you know. Do you, yeah, I mean, I know what a Quaker is, but some people might not. Uh, oh, sorry. So Quakers are... a. I mean, from what we've done on this show, a very wholesome Christian sect who believe that um, every person is able to contact God directly and to have a communication with God directly. So there's no need for priests uh, and for all of the church hierarchy. So they lived in a community and they pray. Well, I don't know if pray is the, the right term. As far as I understand it, they commune with God by sitting together and waiting for inspiration to strike, and every member of the congregation is allowed, when God speaks to them, to stand up and pass that message on to the rest. So there was no alcohol uh, there was, or substances either? No, they lived there. very, very austere lives. Um, so, very simple clothes, very few mm. distractions. They weren't allowed to get involved in sport, uh, gambling. Um, one you of the get reasons, a lot of Quaker towns, don't you, as well? You get a lot of Quaker businesses because one of the few things they were allowed to do was to focus on um, business and industry because yeah. it was considered very wholesome. Um, because if you made more money, you'd have more money to give to charitable causes and philanthropy and lifting your fellow man. So a lot of very famous, I think Barclays Bank, um, Joseph Roundtree, obviously, so Roundtree Foundation... You know, a lot of these companies... As in the suites? Yeah, yeah. A lot of these companies that we know from, that were set up around late Georgian, early Victorian times. So there was... um, There's a garden city near where I was brought up called Letchworth Garden City. You may have heard of it. The the first garden city in the UK... So that was a... um, It's not actually a city, it's a town. But it's... uh, That was... That was a Quaker town. It was built by Quakers. uh, And it was a really big deal when they opened the first pub. Like, years had gone down. Yeah, they had temperance bars, didn't they, until then? Yeah. So, Dandelion and Burdock and stuff like that. Mm. But I think, um, is it the Cadbury's one as well? And Fry's Soaps and stuff like that? Um, They all set up these idealised communities for their workers. And they were really ahead of their time in terms of workers' rights, in terms of... You know, making sure that everyone could live in dignity. We've done episodes where they worked on um, reforming the um, asylum system and introducing the idea of, I don't know, trying to support people to get better rather than just chaining them to a wall and letting you go in for two pennies. So where did all the Quakers go? Because don't, you don't meet any Quakers now. Well, you don't tend to. I don't know. 
we may come to that eventually in mm. a, in an episode. But at the at, you know seventeen ninety eight, Quakers are running wild, doing good all over the place. Yeah, and Joseph Lancaster even he's got he's got the means and he's got the will to set up this new school, and he's he's convinced he's going to change the world. So because he has a rich dad, he was able to secure funds to open his own school in order to test his theories with a cohort of poor children acting as guinea pigs. Which is, okay. it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> the school he built looked like just a long, thin hall on a slanted floor, so that the pupils sitting at the back were higher up than those at the front. This was very important okay. because class sizes, and there was only one mega class, uh, could number in the hundreds. That's quite a good idea, like a unique feature. If you imagine like um, a single-tiered terrace like the cop in um, Anfield, but instead of a football match at the very front, you've got one teacher stood at a lectern. That's, that's the kind that's of feel. That's a good idea, yeah. The education worked via a system called peer tutoring, where essentially the teacher would teach a small group of children a lesson at the front of the class, and those children would then teach another group of children further back, who would then carry on the process until the entire class had received the lesson. Ah, uh, okay, so that goes back into the belief of them being spoken to by God. Right, stay with me here. This is right. So uh, it's just like they can then pass that on to their fellow human who mm. can then teach their fellow human who can then teach their fellow human. Well, it was trying yeah? to streamline it because one of the things that people who were against educating the poor were saying was we don't have enough teachers to, to educate every child. Mm-hmm. So why would we bother wasting what teachers we do have on these poor people who are just going to you know, be fodder for the farms or the factories we need to focus on the people who are going to be running the businesses and he said no 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 i can teach hundreds of kids with just one teacher yeah which obviously it reduced cost as Mm -hmm. you've only got a few qualified teachers for hundreds of kids and that means that you're necessarily able to go further on your budget so you've got more and more of the poor being able to go through a basic education process yeah For the most part, discipline was also taken care of by the children themselves, which is where the plan starts to fall apart a little bit for my mind. Because specifically, it was basically handed over to kids who agreed to act as monitors for the rest of the class. Mm, So you had uh, snitches, (laughs) essentially. You'd set up a snitch system where, as, you know, children were teaching each other lessons you'd have a, a child stood at the end of each row on either side who'd be looking out for um, if anyone was messing about or if somebody didn't appear to be trying as hard as they should and would go and report that to the teacher. Or maybe they weren't, like, teaching the lesson yeah, yeah, that if, they were meant to teach. If they, were, they could have been saying anything, couldn't they? If they were just talking about the fact that, you know, their dad had just birthed a lamb that had an extra leg, be like, right, I need to go and tell the teacher about this. This is... This is gossip. This isn't reading, writing, and arithmetic. This is idle farm gossip. We're not that, that snitch would not do very well if it was a prison setting. Ah, well, it's not a prison setting, is it? It's a school, and the two things are completely different. Snitches get stitches. The one thing they weren't allowed to do, and the one reason you had a teacher at all, really, uh, was you needed someone to dole out the punishment. Someone in authority, somebody who could act in that way as a respectable dispenser of justice. 
Okay. Though, as you might expect from a Quaker, Joseph Lancaster, he wasn't a fan of corporal punishment, which set him out at the time because most teachers were. It was common in other schools for the cane or a ruler to be used to administer six of the best for unruly students, especially in I mean, the... that ran right until the mid-20th century. Oh, we, we, we get to how long it ran for. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was especially in upper-class um, fee-paying schools, because if you're paying for your child to get an education, they're getting an education, damn it, whether they want to or not. And if you have to beat <laughs> you the learning... You will learn, child! Yeah. I will thrash you every day for five years to make sure that you know how to run daddy's business when the time comes. Because that's really healthy and builds really healthy relationships in later life. Like I say, in England it was the cane or the ruler, but in Scotland they favoured a thing called a torsi, which was a leather strap that was split at one end to form two or three tails, depending on preference, uh, that would be whipped across the palm of naughty children. Yeah, so they de- they developed their own special punishment up in Scotland because you know, as we know, they they were innovators up there, inventors, mm, yes, engineers. Yes. We knew that from our last. I was just about to call it a lesson from our last lesson, Joe. Yes, from our last episode. That. The use of violence was justified mainly by referencing the Bible, namely Proverbs, chapter thirteen, verse twenty-four. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. It's quite clear. Mm. Uh, and Proverbs... I mean, it's <laughs> Go clear. On. Clear but wrong. <laughs> Clearly wrong. Uh, and Proverbs 22, uh, verse 6. Train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Right, hold on. I didn't get that one. Train a child... Train up he... a child in the way that he should go. Uh, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So you have to put him on those tracks and you have to make sure that he is too terrified to ever deviate from those tracks. So he won't... Okay, Mm. fine. He would stay on course. Yeah, you need to to set him on that course forcefully uh, in order for Mm. him to stay to the bitter end and to become the man that you wanted. He needs to learn that his own dreams and his own aspirations for life are the devil's trick that he's trying to play on him and he needs to have faith in God and in his parents to to ignore the devil. Well, I just think that's silly, personally. But fine. Well, while Joseph agreed that punishment was needed, he didn't agree that these Bible verses necessarily demanded physical violence. No. Mm. Yeah, good. Which is a positive, good. yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, his more humane suggestions to keep discipline actually sounded like they could have been far worse to experience. Oh, God. Right, go on. Well, in his book on the subject, Improvements in Education, good title, which was published in 1803, Joseph suggested encouraging children to do well by providing medals of silver and inferior metal, whatever that means, for those who did the best, and a complex system of merits that could be earned and lost based on behaviour and could periodically be exchanged for money and other prizes, which all sounds really positive. Mm, It's like, well, if we have this system of merits, then the punishment is losing these merits. You know, if kids are invested in that, it's enough of a deterrent. It's like we used to have the the gold star chart. Yeah. 
at school, like, if you were good, you'd get a gold star. But equally, if you were naughty, you could lose that gold star. Mm. And it worked. Yeah, and that is one of the things that Joseph Lancaster came up with. And if he'd stopped there, if that had been his system of punishment, (laughs) jobs are good. What he didn't write about in Improvements in Education, though, was the recommended punishment for persistent rule breakers. Joseph suggested that, rather than corporal punishment, because hitting kids is wrong, it would be better to place a three-kilo wooden log around a child's neck to make it more difficult for them to move around and to humiliate them in front of their classmates. How does that, like, how am I picturing that? Well, just imagine a a three-kilo log, so a big bit of wood with a rope that's been attached to it. And if you're, you know, making jokes or, you know, you've made a fart noise at the back of class, Mm. the teacher will come up and place this log around your neck, which will be pulling on your neck. So it'll be pulling on your pulling your neck forwards all day, giving you a crick in your neck, and everyone sat around would see that you're wearing the log of shame and would laugh at you. And that mm. would that embarrassment would act as a deterrent. And then later later on, you'd get like the dunce hat, and it'd be like, ha, 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 well, humiliate yeah. you. It's the same idea as the dunce's hat, but yeah. Joseph, he didn't just have the log idea. He had other ideas. He also suggested shackling groups of children together by the legs and forcing them to march around the perimeter of the classroom until they were exhausted. Okay, you know you said that this isn't prison. It sounds... Yeah, but it's not hitting them. So obviously Mm. it's better. Because he's he's not hitting them. Is it that he's just trying to break them? He's doing a forced march around a a large room until they pass out, but he's not hitting them, so that's good. Mm. He also suggested tying their legs together and tying their arms to a piece of wood essentially making the child into a scarecrow for the rest of the day. What? So that they couldn't fidget. Because, you know, if you're tied up like Wurzel Gummidge, you're not going to be able to, you know, make a paper aeroplane and throw it at the teacher, are you? So that's fine. And again, you know, this is in front of your entire class, so they're all there. And if the kid next to you wants to give you a sly dig in the ribs, there's not a lot you're going to be able to do to defend yourself from that position. It started off so well... The idea of all of these punishments was to both remove the ability of a child to cause further mischief and to humiliate them in front of their peers in the hope that this would discourage further rule-breaking because you wouldn't want to go through that again. Okay, so that was the principle behind it. And he took it, he kept improving on this idea to the zenith, the, the absolute epitome. He, he, he boiled it down into the most pure form where he would take a naughty student, he put that naughty student in a sack and do the sack up around their neck so that only the head was sticking out of the sack. Right. Then he would hoist the sack up to the rafters above the rest of the class and leave the child there for hours on end. You know, the other kids are just going to, like, prod and poke, like... Yeah. With sticks and stuff. Well, I don't know if he would encourage that, but he definitely feels like little Timmy there, now he... (laughs) After that afternoon slowly rotating in the rafters. This is psychological damage. Mm. This is going to cause issues. Well, the thing was, I I think he had some kind of bondage fetish because even when toying with more moderate ideas, like, say, detention, because he, he came up with the idea of detention and said, well, maybe if a child is unruly during class, they need to stay after the rest of the children have gone to receive that lesson personally from the teacher... 
that mm. might encourage them to actually pay attention during the class because they have less free time. Everyone went, yeah, Joseph, that sounds good. That's a that's a good idea. Well done. And everyone tried to leave, and he went, no, 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 I'm not finished. And he went, oh, God, Joseph, no. What? That's a fine punishment. We don't need any bells and whistles. He went, no, no, let's let's strap them to the desk. Is there any way we can chain them to the desk during detentions? Just just to make sure that they wouldn't be running out of the classroom because we've got one teacher and if there's five kids in detention, you know, the teacher could only chase one of them. Four would get away. So it was him that kind of came up with the notion of detention. So it's him that I've got to thank for my my what seemed like years of getting detention constantly and having to sit. So we had isolation booths, right? So it wasn't even like you would just sit in a classroom. You would go into detention and isolation booths, right? So they were like single desks and there was like plywood up like either side. So your back was facing outwards, but all you could see is like these two bits of plywood, one side and then the wall in front of you. And, um, yeah, I spent a lot of time there. <laughs> okay, that that sounds pretty harrowing as well, to be fair. I remember when they built them, right? So it was 2001, I would say, and they built them. And I remember saying, like, this is, like, this is really, like, mean. It was, like, very clinical as well. It was all whitewashed and you'd have your... There was, like, two lines of them, one against, like, each side of the wall. But yeah, you couldn't see. So your back was to like, you were kind of like back to back. Yeah, but, but to be fair to them, see. this was the year of nine eleven. Yeah, this was the year of the twin towers. They had to make sure that no one was going to become radicalized and become a terrorist. Things had to change. I mean, they weren't worried about me because, oh, maybe they were. I don't know. I yeah, I would sell secrets to people. <laughs> Amazingly, though. Despite these sociopathic suggestions, at its height, there were as many as 1,500 schools across the world using the Lancastrian teaching method, with Joseph Lancaster even being given an audience with King George III in 1805. He's doing well for himself, isn't he? A bit too well, though. Because with the increased exposure of his methods to the general public came increased scrutiny. And it turned out that many education reformers of the time were horrified by the alternatives to corporal punishment that Joseph had adopted. In 1812, Robert Southey, a vocal opponent of corporal punishment, said, However objectionable the rod may be, it becomes a wise and humane engine of punishment when compared to the yokes and shackles, the cords and fetters, and cages of Mr Lancaster. Mm, He's definitely into... Bondage. Well, at some point he'd adopted cages and started, it seems, getting the kids done up like cart horses. I'm assuming he was having them pull him around like he's a Roman charioteer. He's been pulled (laughs) by teams of kids that he flogged. Run, child, run. This is humane. I could be caning you, but I'm not. I'm making you run the Kentucky Derby. Within a Within a few more years, Lancaster had been to debtor's prison for mismanaging the finances of several schools, had been kicked out of the Quakers because they don't like that sort of thing, and had been accused of both savagely beating and sexually assaulting children under his care. I knew that was going to happen. I didn't want it to happen. Mm. Joseph Lancaster eventually died in 1838 in New York City, having been accidentally run over by a horse-drawn carriage. 
I, I mean, after he was having children, fucking running around like a horse. Well, this is the thing. I say a horse-drawn carriage. It may have been child-drawn. We don't know. It all <laughs> happened so fast. Yeah. Those uh, those New Yorkers, you ain't going to mess with them. New York. Yeah, those, those really kids needed... Accent, sorry. Imagine how many of them would have been hung in sacks. Just the entire class <sighs> being taught in a sack. <laughs> that teacher would have got I know such I shouldn't a laugh. in his neck. I shouldn't laugh, but um, that was quite a funny image. He just walks in and... 200 like children League... suspended in sacks, yeah. swearing. <laughs> it's something out of League of Gentlemen, isn't it? <laughs> just walk in. Oh, this... <laughs> They've broken the system. We don't have enough sacks. <laughs> can you remember the sack race as a child? Did you ever do that? I did. I, I won yeah. a sack race at a... <laughs> Last week. Well no, done. <laughs> um, at a, a fun day at a factory in Indonesia. And I won a travel not. iron. Yes. Um, the person we were staying what with... What were you in... doing in Indonesia? We were staying with a guy in Singapore called Charlie. Lovely man. And mm-hmm. he ran the factory. So he said, look, we're going to have to get on a kayak and we're going to have to go across the border to Indonesia because it's the family fun day. And as the manager of the factory, I have to be there to hand out the prizes. And we went and we were quite clearly, uh, myself and Martin, um, my travel companion, the first Westerners that a lot of the people at the family fun day had seen. And they just naturally mm. assumed we were part of the entertainment. So we were having our photos taken with people. Dance, Jester, dance. Yeah, and they were like, you've got, you've got to get involved in the sports day because mm. we want to watch the white people fall over, which is fine. Mm. I, th- I think that's fair. But yeah. I'm very competitive. So I got into the sack race and I went, right, screw this, I'm winning. If I can win, I will win. And I did win. And I thought that was it. Ha, ha, ha. Put the sack down. You know, everyone's giving me a high five. It's like, oh, this is fun. I'd qualified for the finals. <laughs> so I was forced back into the sack and I won and they presented me with a travel iron. Amazing. Which I didn't need. So I gave it to a young lady um, who'd asked to have a photo taken and she ran were you doing? Were you being like a white saviour? No, that no, no. I was just like, I don't want this. Here, okay, have fine. it. You're the closest person to me. She ran off to her parents who came back and started hugging me. And I worried that I'd done something, mm. you know, um, but it turns out that that was quite a significant amount of money to that's, have that. Yeah, so that's nice. I just, I was like, I can't fit this in my backpack. Here, have it. And that was the equivalent of going, oh, here's something that you could never normally have afforded. Have it. So they have the best pressed clothes in Indonesia now. In that factory. Although, mm. let's be fair, I was 18, so it's probably broke by now. Um, but I'm not going back to win another one. I've I've retired undefeated <laughs> in the Indonesian sack race. <laughs> I shall not jump in my sack again. No. And do you know what? I never did the sack race at school, so I don't know where it came from. Maybe it was the uh, the want to do it at school. You did the egg and spoon race though, right? No, no, I just did straight sprints. I wasn't in. I wasn't into all that frippery, all that nonsense. No, but did you have sprints. to do it? We had to do it in lower school. No, no, you got to pick. Got to pick you. No, we had to do the egg and spoon race. And then there were three-legged race as well. No, I don't believe in that as well. I don't like people. I don't want one strapped to me. Jesus Christ. I know. I was never very sporty. My brother was the sports one. I was just like, oh, I'm perspiring. Can we just stop now, please? I will enter the race, but I shall walk. So (laughs) 
<laughs> I shall judge. You can watch that if you want. <laughs> it will not be entertaining, and I will complain. Mm, yeah. So our matey boy's dead. Yeah, and as a result a, yeah. of Joseph not being able to just stick to his medals of inferior metal and his credit system, a potential opportunity to have gotten rid of corporal punishment in the early part of the 19th century was missed. So, you know, yes. people were listening to him at one point. If he hadn't become a bit insane about it all... Didn't have a fetish. Yeah, we may have got rid of corporal punishment before Victoria sat the throne. Mm, I mean, yeah, the Victorians were brutal mm. and brilliant <clears throat> at the same time. At about the same time that Joseph Lancaster was failing to look both ways before crossing, a young man called Thomas Hopley was starting out on his own career as a teacher in England. Much like Joseph, Thomas was idealistic about improving the prospects for the poorest in society. He published pamphlets with titles like Lectures on the Education of Man, Help Towards the Physical, Intellectual and Moral Elevation of All Classes of Society, and Wrongs Which Cry Out for Redress. I mean, I like the titles. Yeah, they're aspirational. You feel like he's going to be a positive force. Mm -hmm. Thomas was also a very vocal advocate for the abolition of child labour. Okay. But, as Thomas began to take increasingly higher paid teaching jobs, his views began to inexorably become more and more conservative. Hmm. The running theme here, isn't there? Eventually, he was in a position where he and his wife Fanny were rich enough to have several servants on hand, and Thomas had reconsidered his views and become an advocate for not just corporal punishment, but robust corporal punishment. What does that mean? Like, mechanising? That's not even a word. Ollie, talk properly. Well, if you need an example of what robust means in Thomas's head, it is likely that one of his own children received an acquired brain injury from Thomas while still a toddler, as he enforced his robust corporal punishment. That's disgusting. So, it's a heavy thrashing, I think we're talking about here. What is wrong with people? Like, especially children. I mean, don't, obviously, don't beat anybody. It's not cool. Uh, Like we were saying earlier, prior to recording this, just don't abuse people. It's not hard. We have to um, have that talk before every episode. Yeah, yeah, we do. We do. It's counselling weekly for us. Mm. Um, But uh, children, like why, how? I just don't understand why. I mean, I'm not, obviously you you have two lovely children. I'm not a fan of children. I don't, I don't, they don't bring me joy. But I would never beat a child. Not without clear cause. Not without permission from their parents. No, (laughs) That's funny you should say permission from their parents. That does come up. Later on in this tale. God, right Because you've got to keep it above board. But by the late 1850s, Thomas was running a small and exclusive boarding school at 22 Grand Parade in Eastbourne with views out over the beach and which would have been a stone's throw away from Eastbourne Pier if Eastbourne Pier had been built just over a decade earlier than it actually was because Eastbourne Pier wasn't actually started till 1870. So the value of the property was only going to go up. Mm, Yeah, of course. As he could only take a limited number of students, Thomas was charging £180 per year for tutoring per boy, which is approximately 24 grand in today's money. 
So he only needed, you know, four boys to be close to clearing a hundred thou a year. Yeah, I mean, that's not that's quite lucrative, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it definitely suggested that he was uh, a bit less interested in elevating those of the lower classes than he had been earlier in his career. <laughs> like, I've I've done my bit of philanthropy. Now it's time to line my own pockets and feather it my own nest. So much people's opinion changes. Um, as soon as they get a bit of dosh. Mm. Well, I, I mean, I'd like to think it's happening less. Well, no, this generation's getting less dosh, so it's it's happening less. But yeah, no, I would I would counter argue that with uh, a lot of people who bought their council houses in the eighties clearly forgot where they came from because now they're snobs, <laughs> like, and uh, now they've got money. They've dropped all their values mm. because their agenda has changed. So I would say it still happens. Divide and conquer. There's someone poorer mm. than you. Look down on them. Come on, it's the Tory way. <laughs> yeah. There's always someone to look down on if you. I don't mean to. Every time I feel like I get a little bit political, I don't mean to. Sorry. It's I'll stop. okay. I, th- I think everybody who listens to this show knows that we are not right leaning. Um, just because, you know, we talk about the slave trade and we talk about. Uh, empire without gushing and saying well maybe this mm. was a terrible thing <laughs> we refer How to massacres as massacres <laughs> rather than disagreements with the local population yeah well the crusades is a good thing i mean you know they were a thing a lot yeah. of, a lot of people had something to do which it is happened. always good yeah it, it happened and and yeah a lot of people died for not a lot, Religion. really, in the end. Mm-hmm. Yes. However, for Thomas, the fact that he was only teaching the creme de la creme of society didn't necessarily mean that he wouldn't have an opportunity to do some positive work. Because in the summer of 1859, Thomas Hopley was approached by John Henry Cancellor, a master of the Court of Common Pleas, which is the equivalent to a high court judge today. Okay. Because there was the Court of Common Pleas, there was the High Court, and I think there was the King's Bench, and they were all kind of rolled into one court um, a few years later from this time because they were going, why do we have three courts that all essentially hear the same kinds of cases? That's just confusing. Mm. Let's just have one. So is that the, that sort of changed it to the High Court? Yeah, yeah. There was, there was a High Court, but there was also the Court of Common Pleas. There was another one They went, well, actually... It's confusing, and we could just bring them all under one roof. So we're going to do that. So is the High Court the highest court now? No, that would be the... I think we have a Supreme Court now, don't we? I don't know, do we? Yeah. Um, uh, Obviously, all the European courts used to sit above that, but we're we're in the process of demolishing that. (laughs) So I I don't know when you're listening to this uh, person who is listening. We may still be subject to some uh, European courts. Do you know what I would love? If somebody, like, picks this up in, I don't know, let's say 500 years' time, and they're listening to it, and, like, the world's just not existent. Can Like, just picture Wally, the Disney film, right? So it's a bit like that. And um, so post-apocalyptic. And they're just hearing us talking about stuff, and they're like, oh, my God, these guys knew. They knew what was going to happen. They knew it was a bad thing. And then they might build statues of us. In yeah, or they years might go, time. God, they were one of those people taken in by that climate change bollocks. 
Thank God. <laughs> Thank God those Republicans stayed the course. Good old Ted Cruz. <laughs> yeah, it, it may go either way. I mean, I have my theories, but pff, we never get to know the future. That's the that's the joy and the horror of it. Hmm. Anyway, he was approached by John Henry Cancellor. Uh, because John wanted to know if Hopley could try to provide an education for his younger son, Reginald. Reginald had been a student at a private school in St. Leonard's near Hastings, but they had tried for a couple of terms, um, got frustrated, and deemed him ineducable. Okay. And that's the word they used, ineducable. I mean, is that the right word? It was. I mean, they were a private school in St. Leonard's, so I'm assuming that they knew... They probably consulted the dictionary before putting that in writing. To be honest, I've never actually heard of that word until you just said it then. Oh, there are plenty of words like that, don't worry. When you go through these stories, like, oh, okay. <laughs> we were bought a thesaurus for Christmas, weren't we? Anyway, it is almost certain that Reginald had a learning disability. He was described as being kind and affectionate, but very much brain-hampered. Okay. Which is a nice way of putting it. And he was unable to retain or recall any complex or difficult pieces of information. Which, again, points to some kind of, if not learning disability, at least a learning difficulty. Mm-hmm. Thomas Hopley spent most of the autumn term trying to find some method of teaching that could break through to Reginald. But as time went on, and Reginald continued proving completely unable to demonstrate any discernible improvements, he began to get more and more frustrated just like the teachers at St. Leonard's near Hastings. And Thomas Hopley decided that, as everything else had failed, it was time to try administering beatings. Uh, were you waiting for me to say something? <laughs> I, I, I just naturally assumed you'd have, have something for, he's going to try the beatings. Um, stop beating children. <laughs> well, it's worse because sadly he didn't have a cane to hand. So he had to improvise with whatever was lying around at the time. And this turned out to be a walking, a sack. A walking <laughs> stick and a skipping rope with wooden handles. Oh, God, I bet that hurt. Yeah, I'm leaving you to imagine how he wielded the skipping rope. I've just got this idea of like a helicopter. Like, yeah. Oh, God, I bet that hurt. Yeah, I he... was hit round the head with a uh, a dog lead once, and that really hurt. That really hurt. Was it by the dog? Was the dog taking uh, revenge? Um, no, it was, it was... So I was with my friend at the time, and we were walking their dog, Max, I believe his name was. We were young, gish, teenagers. And um, she just starts swinging the dog lead round, just as a little bit of a laugh, and then lets it go. But I'm obviously in the direction of where she lets it go. And it smacked me on the side of the face, knocked me out. <laughs> and uh, I came to, and uh, yes, I'd been beaten by a dog lead. I don't know if that's a beating. I think that's an accident. I mean, if I she beaten, then walked over to you, lying on the floor, beaten. picked it up and started whipping you with it across the back. I think she actually tried to kiss me. <laughs> <laughs> she knocked you out and tried to kiss you. No, that's that's not a beating. That's attempted sexual assault. I'm pretty sure. I know. I was like, "Excuse me, darling." No, back away. I don't. I'm not 100 percent sure, but I'm sure enough that this is not what I want. <laughs> this is not how I wanted it to be. The teenage years are confusing times, but they're not that confusing. <laughs> Good day, madam. Good day to you, sir, and to your dog. 
so yes, he administered some vigorous beatings to Reginald in December, to the point that the bruises were still evident when he returned to the family home for Christmas holidays. His father, John, complained to Thomas Hopley, who agreed that he would not conduct any further beatings once Reginald returned to Eastbourne in the new year, because he hadn't told Daddy ahead of time. It had been a kind of, you know, just loosey-goosey, we'll see how we go, and he'd done a few beatings, but it hadn't been part of the plan. It feels good. That that was acceptable in that society. If someone had beaten... Well, for example, if uh, one of your children's teachers had been like, yeah, we just beat them up today, you would be livid. Oh, in today's you? context, definitely. But, like, you know... But that was like, oh, okay, fine, fine. Yeah, even going back to our parents' generation, you know, I know my dad was, you know, hit at school and the teacher would mm. say, well, I had to hit him today and me nan would have gone, yeah, sometimes you do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of those days, was it? Fair enough. Uh, hopefully he'll, he'll have learned his lesson. He'll be better tomorrow. Mm. So it's, it's not that long ago. No, it's not long ago at all. Anyway, the first term of 1860 appeared to be going a bit better than the last one of 1859, and Hopley even sent a letter to John Cancellor to report that Reginald had finally begun to show some evidence of having learned something. Congratulations. Young Reginald returned home for the Easter holidays completely unmarked and proud of his achievements. And it seemed that all would be plain sailing from there. They cracked the code. Daddy, I didn't get beaten today. I was a good boy. I mean, he's, he's from South London, so that might work. I don't know. Set, more like South London. Daddy. Da- Daddy. Daddy? I'm Australian. How did that happen? <laughs> Struth. Papa. <laughs> I can't do it. Um, I didn't get beat today, did I? Nah. You're yeah. a good Reginald. You've done, you've done good, Reginald. I always knew you could learn, son. <laughs> and you need to. I need you to run a very difficult investment business. In three years, you need to take over the reins, so keep going, lad. Well, Hopley, he was so happy, he felt that he'd, you know, he took all the credit. Uh, of saying course. that he'd finally figured out a way of teaching um, Reginald, and that he was confident that if he stuck to this new method, there'd be no further issues, that Reginald would progress, and that he could even make up for the lost time. He was very positive. Hmm. Which, you know, I mean, it wasn't the beatings that had worked, but you've got to try all the methods, and beatings is on the list, so we can forgive yeah. him that, can't we? <laughs> Trial and error. Yeah. Reginald returned to Eastbourne on April 16th, 1860. And on April 18th, Thomas Hopley wrote another letter to his father. And this letter had a slightly different tone. Hopley said that Reginald was being deliberately obstinate, and that, and this is a direct quote, If he were my child, I would, after warning him, subdue his obstinacy by chastising him severely. And if necessary, I should do it again, and again, continuing at intervals, even if he held out for hours. However, I cannot be blind to the fact that at Christmas, I ran a serious risk of having my character damaged for life, and I do not think it right to run that risk again. I therefore write this to know your wishes. So he was basically asking for permission to administer multiple beatings to a learning disabled 14-year-old boy. So what does chastise well, mean? Yeah, this... chastise is to, to tell off, to admonish, to, you know, correct someone. But 
in this it's it's like the um bartender in um the shining you know i had to my wife was um not happy and i had to correct her hmm. you know the 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 implied the implied sort of undertone to that is i'm asking permission to beat your son again lots um but you were sad about it last time so i'm warning you ahead of time and just making sure that you're you're cool with this plan because i don't well, i don't want you to accuse me of overstepping my bounds i mean I'm... well i i personally think it's very unacceptable well he received a reply on the 20th of april um from john Kanzler, which simply said i do not wish to interfere with your plan which is a very so non-committal just way yeah given him the nod yeah, without without stating it openly, yes, you may beat my child. It's, um, you do what's best. I'm not an educator. I'm just a high court judge. So what do Jeez, I know about punishment? <laughs> the whole idea of like childhood, as we see it today, is a very new concept, isn't it? Like they were oh, just definitely. seen as, like, uh, as soon as they could work, you need to work. Um, whereas now we we know that nurturing. And loving is the best way to build a balanced adult. <laughs> well, Not beating them senseless. For every infraction, yeah. Hmm. Hopley reported that the day after receiving this letter, he was forced to administer a few beatings to Reginald in the classroom. Though he was clear that he had been careful to not draw blood, or leave any lasting marks as part of these punishments. He stated that after the last thrashing, Reginald finally broke down, wept, and asked to be allowed to recite his lessons for his tutor. After what a bully. After he had done this, at about 10pm, Reginald retired to bed. The next morning, Thomas Hopley went to wake Reginald, and was surprised to find that the young boy was dead. <gasps> oh, I'm horrified. After a delay of a few hours, his father John was given the heartbreaking news and immediately started the 80-mile journey south from his home on the outskirts of London. While he was travelling, Thomas Hopley was doing quite a bit of organising. He contacted a friend, who also happened to be a surgeon, to confirm how Reginald had died. Which is, you know, that's a normal thing for a teacher to do. Hmm. So he's basically trying to cover up. Well, he's, the dad gets no, there. he's organising a private autopsy so that, um, you know, John doesn't have to go through all of that. He's being helpful. Mm. Hopley strongly suggested to his mate that it was most likely to have been uh, an underlying heart condition that had caused the death. And mm, his, his friend, the surgeon, didn't actually formally examine the body, but he was assured that nothing out of the ordinary had been happening before the boy had retired to bed. Uh, so he, he kind of agreed with what Hopley was saying because you've got to help out a mate, haven't you? <laughs> Just cover up some child death. Well, it's like from all the inf- you can you can be well from all the information that was made available to me. <coughs> Hopley um, sounds like it was um, you know some kind of congenital heart defect that did for him. I don't think we need to go much further than that. Hmm. The reason the surgeon didn't get to examine Reginald was that Hopley and his wife Fanny had already laid the boy out in readiness for his father. This included putting him in long stockings and long kidskin gloves, which was definitely not standard practice for a corpse at the time. 
In fact, by the time they had finished, the only thing visible was Reginald's face. Which, if you were the dad, would you not be like, you'd get there and you'd be like, what the hell? Well, when when your kids were in gloves a la Audrey Hepburn in Breakfast at Tiffany's, you know, all the way up past the mm. elbow, you'd be like... Oh. Uh, especially if that's not casual dress <laughs> for the time. like so It's just part of our school uniform. I don't see what's wrong with it. Um, <laughs> We've just uh, gaffer taped it on as well, so you can't remove it yeah. to check the body. It's called fashion. Look it up sometime. I know you're mourning, <laughs> but, you know, we were forward thinking. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> when John Cancellor arrived, he was told by the surgeon that Reginald had died of a heart disease or congenital heart defect or something to do with his heart. And he mm. was assured that the mild punishments he had consented to had played no part in his son's death, which mm. he must have been feeling guilty. So it's one of those, even if it looked a bit suspect. It probably puts his mind at rest. Yeah. Well, do you want to go picking at that? just like well they're telling me i did nothing wrong so i'm just gonna hold on to that uh, and just take it at face value because i really don't want to think that i've done something to contribute to my son's death so you know he he allowed himself to be hoodwinked i think yeah hopefully then having seen john apparently accepting this explanation uh he pressured the grieving father to organize for the boy to be buried immediately as there was now not really a need for a formal inquest into the cause of death for a 14-year-old boy who'd been absolutely fine the day before. You don't you don't need to dig any deeper because the surgeon turned up and said it was a heart defect. So we're, we're good. Anyway, bury him. Now, I've got a shovel. Can you just come on? <laughs> In fact, Fanny's out there now. She's started on the hole. Um, yep. Let's go out and go. help her. Come on, it's cathartic go, go, to go. do some work. Just mindless work. It really helps when you... When you faced a big shock like that, John. When you're trying to cover up a murder. Well, shell-shocked, John agreed that this was probably the best course of action. Oh, okay. And you'll organise it for me, will you, Thomas? Thank you. I just need to sit down. This makes it worse because he's like... He's obviously like... uh, You're in the age where teachers, doctors are just taken at face value. And he is obviously trying to cover up for his own guilt. This is awful, this poor child. Well, that could have been an end to it. Because if the dad says, you know, everything's fine, um, who's who's going to argue? Teacher said nothing happened, dad says he believes him. It's, it's fait accompli, isn't it? It's done. However, some of the servants who overheard the conversation between Councillor and Hopley, they were sure that something underhand was going on. Firstly, Hopley's insistence that the punishments had taken place downstairs in the classroom were not true at all. The servants had seen Hopley dragging Reginald upstairs to his room. They had then seen his wife Fanny following them, trying to clean bloodstains off the steps leading up to the room. Hopley had also insisted that Reginald had been asleep by 10.30, but the servants had heard him screaming out in pain until around midnight, half past midnight. Incidentally, the coroner would eventually put the time of death at between midnight and 1am. But I'm sure the two things are unrelated. The screams suddenly abruptly stopped just after midnight. Oh yeah, that, and he, that'll be it. He died <laughs> abruptly sometime just after midnight, but they're not connected at all. 
one of the servants just so happened to know the sister-in-law of Sir Charles Lowcock, who at the time was the obstetrician to Queen Victoria herself. Mm. You know, so we're talking about a doctor who is so well respected in his field that he is allowed to look at the royal tuppence, which is <laughs> that's a, that's a high-powered job, isn't it? I don't think anyone wants to see that royal tuppence. But you know, he's he's considered to be a, a very eminent physician to be given that that you know how we were talking about the um, the groom of the stool. Yes. And the level of privilege that it took to get that position because you were seeing the king at his most <clears throat> his most vulnerable. vulnerable. Imagine having the Empress of India up in stirrups <laughs> and the amount of trust that would need to be placed in you yeah, to yeah, handle yeah. that delicate situation. So, you know, he, he definitely earned his knighthood, I think, Sir Charles. <clears throat> Sorry. Sir Charles was acquainted with the councillors and he, having heard all of these descriptions managed to get in touch with Reginald's brother. He was also called John Cancellor, but luckily, in order to avoid confusion, he was also a reverend. So I'm just going to refer to him as Reverend Cancellor. Okay. Um, And he insisted to the Rev that it would be very necessary for a proper autopsy to be conducted before Reginald was buried. He even... Agreed, yeah. yeah, Because he was a good guy, this Charles Lowcock. He said, bring the child to me, I'll do the autopsy myself. You guys are mates. You know that I'm not going to try and hide anything. I'll give you the truth. You just you just bring yeah. the body here. We'll get it sorted. Acting on this advice, the Reverend Councillor travelled to Eastbourne with an undertaker on April 25th to collect his brother's body, which Hopley had considerately already placed in a lead-lined coffin to further reduce the time needed to get him into the ground. Probably Convenient. as soon as his brother turned up, he's like handing him a hammer and some coffin nails and going, we may as well just close this up for ease of transportation. Come on. <laughs> We're done. We're done here. Yeah. I mean, I've got the crematorium down the road ready, you know. Um, it's all <laughs> up to ten. there. Yeah. <laughs> we could burn him if that's what you prefer. <laughs> but, you know, Fanny's finally finished the hole. It's taken her a couple of days, but, you know, she's, she's weak because I don't feed her properly. Um, whichever, pick your poison. Either we'll bury him or we'll burn him, but let's do it now, eh? Hopley continued to insist that he'd done nothing wrong and that his behaviour was perfectly normal. But when he was informed that Sir Charles Lowcock himself would be performing a full autopsy before burial, he noticeably went white as a sheet. Hmm, well, yeah. That's what happens when you get busted. The body was removed from the coffin, it was taken to London, and it was placed in front of Sir Charles. And when he removed the clothing from Reginald's body, he found that it was covered in wounds. There were bruises and cuts everywhere, including two inch-long holes deep enough that Sir Charles could insert a finger and touch bone. What? How? How? He concluded they were most likely caused by forcibly jabbing a blunt object directly into the skin over and over so this is this has gone from I need to discipline this child because they're being a bit naughty and they're not listening like a, a little tap to a severe beating to torture. I think it's fair to say that somebody lost control because the beating Reginald had received from somebody uh, was so intense and sustained that Lowcock reported that Reginald's thighs were reduced to perfect jelly, with multiple breaks and fractures of the bones. 
So the muscles no longer felt or acted like muscles. They were just like a liquid under the skin. They'd been tenderized that much. Poor lad. And incidentally, in case you're wondering, there was no indication of heart disease or any issues at all with any of of the internal organs. Aside from confirmation of hydrocephalus. Uh, So you know, liquid on the brain, which all but guaranteed that Reginald had been a young man with learning disabilities. Okay, so there was a pressure on his brain from some fluid. So it wasn't that he was being obstinate, it wasn't that he was, um, you know, willfully neglecting his studies, it was that he had a condition that made it very, very difficult for him to to perform basic tasks, Um, and that would eventually have resulted in a, a, you know, a severely reduced lifespan anyway. Uh, for poor old Reginald, but you know he might have had a few more years than he got. Yeah, what was he fourteen? Yeah. Unsurprisingly, uh, after these discoveries, Sir Charles concluded that the death was not of natural causes, hmm. and Thomas Hopley was arrested in May. Good. And charged before being released on a two thousand pound bail pending his trial. This Money didn't talks. really bother Thomas. We don't do bails anymore. We do. It's not a thing, do we? Yeah, you can. You can still have bail. I thought you, that was an American thing. I thought you couldn't do it here. I thought you had to stay in once that once you were charged. No, you, you can be held on remand. It depends on the kind of crime you've committed, your likelihood of trying to abscond. You know, there are mm. other factors, but yeah, you will be expected to to post bail. Mm. Yeah, but Thomas wasn't. Well, he wasn't bothered about this at all. He was confident, in fact, that he would be found not guilty, as he had the letter from Reginald's father, which indicated that he'd been given parental responsibility for Reginald. But the letter was vague. Yeah, but it said, I don't want to interfere. So he, he's, his plan was to hand that to the judge and say, look, he said I could beat his kid, and I felt this was justified. You know, he wasn't. Yeah, for whatever reason, strong enough to take it, but that's his fault and his constitution. It's not my fault as an educator. Yeah, Sometimes it's yeah. the student's fault, not the teacher's fault. So we'll chalk mm. this one up to a bad job and I can go back to my school. Yeah, okay. He even, he was so confident, used the time before the trial to write a pamphlet about the incident that he intended to publish as soon as he was found in- innocent. So he was like, well, when the inevitable, you know, um, conclusion of this happens, I can use this as a, you know, as a learning tool um, and I can use it to advocate for my system of of education because there'll be a lot of publicity around. I'll be completely absolved. I may as well use this moment of celebrity to maximum effect for myself. So he's he's quite positive about the entire trial. I mean, that's one way to spin it. (laughs) But while Thomas Hopley was sure that his actions had been protected under the law, John Cancellor was convinced that he had essentially signed his own son's death warrant. Wracked with guilt, his health failed, and John Cancellor died a month before the trial was due to commence on June 22nd, 1860, at the age of only 61. It was accepted by all that he had died of a broken heart. Yeah, well, and something that he's potentially uh, not responsible for, but he had a hand in. He didn't. He didn't stop it. Did yeah. He? 
And he's probably thinking, why, when I was sent that letter, didn't I say, well, actually, I think we're going to um, remove Reginald from your school. Thank you for all you've you've done, but we're going to go with someone a bit less uh, violent. Hitty. Yeah, hitty, 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 punchy, punchy, yeah. The trial eventually started on June 23rd, 1860, with the charge only being manslaughter. This was because, as Hopley had identified, parental responsibility had been granted to him. But, yeah, was it, though? So he'd been acting as uh, a guardian for the child when he had administered a beating, and obviously correcting a child was perfectly legal. So he couldn't be um, charged with murder because he hadn't set out to murder the child. He'd set out to correct him and had done so a bit overzealously. So that the most he could be charged with was manslaughter. Yeah, well, that's just stupid. Mm. But his belief that this also insulated him from a guilty verdict was rather optimistic. Because the judge, Justice Cockburn, he made it clear... Is it Coburn? No, it's Cockburn. Love it. And he made it clear to the jury from the outset that the parental responsibility only protected Hopley from prosecution for... And this is a direct quote. Correcting what is evil in the child with reasonable and moderate punishment. Mm. He went on to clarify that this meant that any punishment that was immoderate or excessive in nature or degree, protracted beyond the child's powers of endurance, or with an instrument unfitted for the purpose, then the violence is unlawful. Mm. This description not only completely sunk... um, Hopley's defence, because when you're beating a kid with a, a walking stick and a, a rope, you know, a skipping rope, you can't say mm. that those are instruments fitted to the purpose. And you're like punching inch holes into his body so yeah. someone can feel bone. Uh, it also set a precedent for the concept of excessive force that has influenced British law to this day. So it's Good. quite a landmark bit of um, legal precedent that was set during this case. The clear instructions given by the judge, combined with the fact that the defence attorney, a man called William Ballantyne, he'd been a friend of the now-deceased John Cancellor, and he didn't actually feel like bothering to defend Hopley all that much. No, well, you wouldn't. In fact, would you if your, mate, your mate's child has been beaten to death and then your mate dies? William Ballantyne, he was so open about the fact that he didn't really like Hopley and he really felt that he should be punished that he later described uh, Reginald in his memoirs as the wretched half-witted victim of a lunatic system of education who was deliberately mangled to death. So he, he was quite clear that he, he was, you know, team counsellor. He was like, yes, this guy was a lunatic, this Hopley, and he deliberately killed this kid just out of fury that he couldn't educate him and this indifference from his defense lawyer the clear instruction from the judge uh, it ensured that thomas hopley was found guilty of manslaughter good he was sentenced to four years what yeah four that seems fair Hmm. no feel he should have got more uh I feel like we're still <laughs> in the uh, the age of capital punishment, aren't we? So, oh God, I'm one of them. You feel <laughs> he should have been up, hung. 
Should have strung him up. Should have. Do you know what my dad always used to say? He was a like, military man. Every time someone disagreed with him in the the most minor setting, they want taken outside and shooting. They do. <laughs> every single time. It's like <laughs> someone gave him like a penny less change. You want taken outside and shooting? You do. It's like bloody hell. Like, calm down. So, oh god, yeah, I've turned into that. But yes, something. More than four years should have happened to this. The thing guy. is, Thomas Hopley, he felt that this was uh, excessive in the extreme. Uh, and he would later recount to the press that he didn't feel any guilt over the situation whatsoever. He felt it was all a misunderstanding and that there had been an overreaction just because this had been a kid who died. He was like, well, people get emotional over children and they allowed that to cloud their judgment of what was How right and true. Dare they? And he. he, he thought well it's a four-year it's an extended holiday because while he was in Millbank prison in Westminster Thomas produced two pamphlets on how to educate children why would you even entertain that idea well he he assumed that he would just go back and pick up his career after this unpleasantness what prison was he in Millbank Millbank in Westminster it doesn't exist anymore as far as I'm aware no, I've not heard of it. It was quite cushy, you know. It wasn't. He was. He was a man who had some means. It was so a posh, posh to, prison. Yeah, he wasn't going to go to the, the rough prisons. No. I mean, he just killed a child. You can't expect him to face too much. Hardship. To rough it, rough it as well. So yeah, mm. uh, following his release in 1864, Thomas was immediately involved in another court case. Okay. This time it was a divorce trial, because Fanny had spent the four years without Thomas, slowly coming to realise that he had been an incredibly abusive husband. Uh, yeah. She had only been 18 when they'd married, while Thomas had been 36. And so she was okay. likely to have been naive to the fact that his behaviour towards her and their children was far, far outside the realms of normality. So he was abusive to his wife and his own yes. family as well. She reported that he'd been physically abusive to both her and their young children regularly, administering beatings for the slightest infractions and being just overly demanding of perfection from everyone around him. Okay. So it's a bit of a nut job, is what we're saying. Well, he insisted that it was necessary as it was the only way to ensure that the children grew up to be second Christs. Right. What does that even mean? I have no idea. But I'm... from the context, I'm assuming he wanted his kids to be as pure as the second coming of Jesus. And that the only way to I do mean, that was to mercilessly beat the shit out of them and their mother. You see this quite a lot in uh, sort of religion and cult-like organisations. Mm. They say one thing and they do another. Oh, it's my... I'm going to say Christian because... I am. It's my Christian duty to do this, this and this. However, I am going to beat this person because that's what it's the Lord when... Jesus wants me to do. I just, it's just insane. When and cult... actually, uh, sorry, go on. I was going to say, when cult leaders do it, part of it is testing the loyalty of the followers. So it's, I'm going to infringe on the, the real clear rules that I've set up for everyone. You're going yeah. to know I've done it. I'm going to know I've done it and I'm going to expect you to not only pretend it hasn't happened, but to explain why 
I have not actually done the thing that we both know I've done in order to show that, you know, you're loyal to me. So it's a bit of a testing thing as well. Yeah. Yeah, okay, fine. But it's still... Oh, it's um, heinous. Yeah, it's still... And very hypo- hypocritical. Um, yes, we love everyone, but not you, or you, or you, <laughs> or you. Like, yeah, mad. The jury. They found Thomas Hopley guilty of cruelty towards his family in July 1864. But amazingly, the judge did not grant a divorce. He insisted that by sending letters to Thomas while he was in prison, Fanny had shown that she had at least partially condoned his treatment of her. It's like, well, you actually contacted Thomas while he was in prison and you you signed it, all my love, Fanny. So that means that, you know... That means you still love him. Yeah, and you wanted to be beaten. You, You probably begged him to beat you, didn't you? What is wrong with people? Luckily, because I would have lost faith in in the British people entirely, there was a public outrage at this decision. People were disgusted that, you know, the the argument wasn't that he hadn't beaten her. It was that, well, she kind of had it coming. This naive 18-year-old who'd been married by someone twice her age, who'd clearly gaslit her and took advantage of her. However, rather than appeal in the verdict, which is what a lot of the public thought she should do, Fanny just... It's easier to just leave the country, which she did with the kids, and he never saw them again. Well, so technically, she was still married, but she was like, Do you know what? No one in Canada is going to give a fuck if I'm married. I can just say I'm not. They're not going to check. I was going to say, how would you know? Especially like pre internet age. Mm. Like, and I'm not, obviously, people used to keep records and stuff, but how is a record from London going to find its way? To, to the Dominion of Canada. Well, I mean, yeah. we both watch serial killer documentaries from the 70s. We do. If you change states, none of that, you know, you could have committed a felony and be like, yeah, well, it's on an index card in Indiana. I mean, this is Minnesota. What, what do you want yeah, us to do? do you, Ask what them. What do you mean? You're basically free and clear. You can be whoever you want to be. Just go down Can there. I just um, inject there with a little fact about the prison? Because you piqued my interest. I love an old prison. So and, this um, is so Millbank, Millbank Prison in Westminster. Yes. Yeah. So um, obviously it's not there anymore. No. But you may be familiar with where the Tate Gallery, not the Tate Modern, the Tate Gallery stands, and it stands on exactly the same spot that the entrance was to Millbank Prison. Wow. Well, there so. You go. Yeah. So what you're saying is it was prime real estate. It it was, yeah. It had a lot of problem with subsidence as well, apparently, which is why it ended up getting knocked taken down away. Yeah. Yeah. We can't we can't have subsidence in a prison. I mean, we've got to think of the comfort of the Victorian prisoners. It was absolutely huge as well. Absolutely ginormous. Now alone, in his late forties, and hated by the public at large, despite the many many pamphlets about education theory that he continued to publish. Thomas Hopley, yeah, he, he needed to do something with his life, didn't he? Oh. And naturally, he returned to working as a private tutor in London. What? Yep. He went back to teaching like nothing had happened. And he was employed Mad. by many eminent people. 
to be a teacher Even... for their kids. Yeah, I mean, why? He continued to do this until his death on June 24th, 1876. In his obituary, it was disclosed that at the time of Cancellor's death, Thomas had been planning to open a model school in Brighton and had actually taken the time to inspect the plans shortly after beating the boy to death. So he had been so delusional that he hadn't felt that the fact that he'd just killed a child would in any way stop him from building his own school where he would be in charge of potentially hundreds of kids away from their parental supervision. Has this guy got, like, syphilis or some venereal disease? Or is he just unwell? No indication. He was just convinced that he was right, that his method of education was right, and that, you know, to make an omelette, you may have to break a few eggs, but ultimately... Or kill a few children. Yeah, well, that's the saying, isn't it? To make a f- to make an omelette, you have to kill a few children, hmm. and there's as much truth Even in with, that today as there was back with then. learning disabilities. Oh yes, hell. corporal punishment in government-run schools in Britain was finally banned in 1987, hmm. which is only a short 204 years after the first country to ban such practices, Poland, who enacted their ban in 1783. We're always quite late to the game with things. I think we like to think we're very progressive, but we're not. We're two centuries behind Poland in this particular. Yeah, but even anything, like decimalisation, we were way behind. Votes for women, we were way behind. Like, we're not at the forefront of anything, really. Not not really. We like to say we are. We're kind of just, we're coming middle somewhere. As long as we're before the last person, we're like, yes, we did that before you. We're world-beating. We are world-beating, yes. Of course, there is a caveat to that, because fee-paying schools were allowed to continue beating children until it was finally outlawed across the entirety of the UK in 2003. What? Yeah. I left school in 2003. That was the, that was when the ban in Northern Ireland came into force in 2003. So it was piecemeal with fee-paying schools. It happened in each of the countries of the Union at separate times. But the last official condoned beating that took place in a in a British school would have taken place in 2003. Hmm. I mean, we used. To, I mean, this is. I'm probably disclosing child abuse now, but um, I remember. Because I had my ears pierced when I was at school. One ear pierced. Not the gay side, obviously. Which is the gay the, side? Uh, I don't bloody know. If I'm like, oh, you've got the gay side pierced. I'd be like, well, funny you should say that, guys. Um, but I remember having it in. in um, we were playing rounders or something. And our teacher, sports teacher, who was also my form tutor, came and pulled my ear so hard that it ripped my earring out of my ear. And... Um, yeah, that's yeah. assault, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is the same school that I was telling you about where the, the paedophile was a music teacher Jesus. as well. It's so, amazing that yeah. you made it out alive. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm hard as nails, is what we're saying. The case became known as the Eastbourne manslaughter case. And I guess the moral of the story, if there is one, is it would have been great if Joseph Lancaster had not put kids in sacks and hung them from the rafters. So he's responsible as well. I, f- I feel he has to hold some of the responsibility because he had a a situation where people were listening to him. 
he'd come up with a, a more humane idea and then he hadn't stopped when he was ahead and he'd kept adding more things and he got more and more demented. And it's like, why don't we make them into horses? We'll hang them from the <laughs> ceiling. I do, it does make we'll me laugh them together. got um, knocked down in New York by horses, mm. potentially children horses. I, d- I don't think it Who was knows? children horses, if we're being I mean, fair. But it, he was over there um, because he'd become disgraced in Britain. So he was going to different countries to try and rehabilitate the Lancaster teaching method. Um, by going home, well, you know, I had all of these schools in Britain. <clears throat> They're all shut now. Uh, you know, I, I met with the king. <clears throat> he won't return my calls. Um, <laughs> so he's, he was trying to drum up, you know, almost a second coming of his um, ideas in a new location where they hadn't realised he was insane. And the thing is, people just don't drop these ideas, though, don't you? You would have thought that if, if something is not successful or it's kind of deemed as inappropriate... You wouldn't keep banging that same drum, would you? You'd you would tweak it, or you would. Well, you'll always find like, contrarians oh, well, who go for it because you'll always get. Even today, there will be parents who are like, "We should still be able to hit kids. It's the only language they understand." I was hit. It didn't didn't do me any trouble, you know. But it did, Margaret, yeah. didn't it? It did, Margaret. <laughs> you are an ill-tempered, bitter, brutal lady. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric, here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.